Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Reich's Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Tim Costello in conversation with Chris Hanley, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Reich's Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronreichersfestival.com. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Chris Hanley is my name, and I've got the great pleasure this morning uh, of talking with someone I've admired for a very long time. Put your hands together and thank Tim Costello. (laughs) I had the good fortune of reading Tim's book very early in the piece. Um, I got a PDF of it. I, I didn't actually have the book itself. I only got it recently. And reading on a Kindle... Uh, as, uh, or, an, or listening on an audio book is always different to a paper version. But when I got to the end of the book, I'd scribbled more notes probably than I had on any of the books that I've had to read for this and any other festival. So I've got many, many questions, and I hope during this session I, I can get to the, the questions uh, and, and the topics that are of great interest to me. But you can't read your book, Tim, uh, without firstly talking about faith. And I had a a vision or an understanding of faith before I started the book, that faith was a safe option for people, that people um, chose faith because it was an easy way, because they could relax. And I realised that my version of faith and yours were different. Yours was about taking risk. Explain to us how faith fits into your life. Yeah, well, I don't think you can be faulted for thinking that it's a safe version. Some of the loudest voices on faith right now in Australia seem to be uh, racked with fear and anxiety and uh, you, uh, you can be forgiven for mis- mistaking that. Look, for me, faith is a synonym really for risk. Uh, if the, there is no risk, you don't actually need faith. It's all nailed down and uh, faith is uh, a verb, not a noun. One of the uh, tricky things with uh, translating the Greek word in the New Testament faith, the the word is pistis, is that we always translate it as a noun, the faith, a proposition that you sign up to. It's actually a verb. It's much more faithing than having the faith. Uh, Trusting would be uh, a better synonym. So as a verb, faith is for me, Active, if it doesn't take me out of my comfort zones and uh, drag me into places where I wouldn't otherwise want to go, uh, it's not much of a faith. So it's the very opposite of a safe harbour for me. It's actually a propulsion into facing the nasties within me and they're there. I I, uh, was commenting on ABC about Israel Folau's Instagram saying in his list were things like Slander, well, I've slandered. Lies, well, I've told lies. Don't ask me about the rest of the list, uh, Chris, I'll ask you. Uh, (laughs) Faith is actually saying the ethical journey, um, the spiritual journey is facing what's in me and trying to face that with transparency and accountability, uh, which I think is the real journey of life, whatever you do outwardly. So it's both faith internal and faith external for me. You grew up in a family where your mum and dad had different versions of faith. Um, I, I like the, the, the difference. Explain to us the, how they viewed faith in a different way. Yeah, for those who don't come from a Christian background, this might sound odd, but my father 
Uh, met my mother at university. He was 11 years older, a return soldier from New Guinea, and um, which really the war was his break. He had left school, though bright at 15, couldn't take a scholarship uh, to go on because depression meant he had to earn money for the family. He was working in a hosiery uh, factory in Brunswick, believing that would be the rest of his life. And war comes along, he fights in New Guinea, he gets a soldier subsidy to matriculate, go to university, meets my mother uh, 12 years younger. My uh, mother now looks back on it as his pickup line in the cafeteria queue, uh, where he said, I've seen you, uh, I understand you're doing psychology, would you test my IQ? Not a bad pickup line, is it? <laughs> uh, she regards it as a pickup line because uh, she later realised Dad never ever bought anything from the cafeteria. He always had a packed lunch. He had actually followed her in and positioned himself behind her. Um, my mum belonged at uh, university to what's called the Student Christian Movement, which doesn't take the Bible literally, that's more liberal theologically. Dad belonged to the Evangelical Union, which is more fundamentalist, believes the Bible literally. Now, for those outside Christian faith, you'd go, well, they're still just Christian, aren't they? No, no, these represented the Sunni and Shia of the Christian world. <laughs> these warred with each other to the point of death. Uh, it's a little bit like Freud said, the, uh, the narcissism of small difference, often the biggest conflicts are with those who are closest to you in worldview. So when they met and uh, eventually married, eventually because mum was in hospital for two years of her uh, university degree, she was told she wasn't going to live. She did. She was told you must never marry. She got engaged to my father. She was told if you marry, you mustn't have children. When I was conceived, she was told she must have an abortion. And my mother said, fiddlesticks, what would the doctors know? Mum's still alive at 90. Yeah. Was that my book launch on Tuesday night? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do remember Dad, uh, when the doctor had given Mum that medical advice, died. Dad was reading his obituary <laughs> and saying, what did he know? Uh, he's gone. But when they married, uh, Chris... Their friends in student Christian movement and the evangelical movement were profoundly shocked. They said, this can never work. This is oil and water. So a lot of the memoirs is actually about yeah. the bookends of my parents' faith. Why, why did their marriage work? And, and I'll just add to this, your dad's view of faith was that what we do down here was, I love this, was an insurance policy for what happened in heaven. Yeah. Which I thought was really for all of you out there. So the, <laughs> but your mum's view was different. Completely. What was her yeah, view? Yeah, no, dad, Dad's view, evangelical worldview, was that uh, the whole point of life is to here and now come to Christian faith, repent, and book your ticket to the great U2 concert in the sky. And uh, this world is stuffed and uh, over. Mm. It's just a sinking ship, and therefore Christian faith is to uh, climb the ladder to get to heaven and escape. Yeah. Mum sort of had a faith that said, yeah, spiritual mysteries and climbing the ladder of spirituality is important, but what's the point of still climbing? Stop, go back down onto earth and do something about earth now. Mm. So her faith was literally, thy kingdom come on earth, thy will be done on earth, heaven 
on earth? How do you actually live out faith that deals with conflict and uh, injustice and things here? So uh, Dad was the strong one. He knew the Bible. He taught New Testament Greek as well as being a teacher at Cary. And Mum didn't really know the Bible. So growing up, we sort of had a supercilious attitude to Mum. It was like, Mum, you don't really know the Bible like Dad. By the end of the memoir, I've actually said, Mum understood what I think the Bible's real message is much better than Dad. Yeah. Uh, so it was this, this journey between their faiths. They also had a different view of ambition, which, which I found interesting. Your mum was far more ambitious, if not for herself, for you. Absolutely. Mum uh, was middle class, a liberal voting family. Dad uh, was working class, labour voting family. Um, and uh, mum's parents weren't at all accepting of uh, mm. the relationship. Uh, my grandmother, mum's mum, had uh, said to mum, pinning a note to her pillow, uh, saying, Anne, don't marry a man out of pity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she felt dad was... When dad would turn up at mum's place... Uh, on the bike? On the bike, Peter Pan, his yeah. bike. Uh, uh, mum, grandma would answer the door and say... And that coot is here again. <laughs> and the, the social status, the political differences were very marked. Um, Grandma came around to accepting Dad. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't helped by the fact that um, Dad's Catholic brother and uh, sister-in-law, very devout, could not enter the Presbyterian church where Mum and, I, uh, Mum and Dad were married because it was a mortal sin in 1953 to go into a church. Mum's side of the family never forgave them. Uh, mum would spit out when I was a child in the street as we passed someone, he's got the map of Ireland all over his face. <laughs> and as a six-year-old, I'd study the face trying to see <laughs> the map of Ireland. <laughs> um, so uh, in terms of ambition, Mum was much more ambitious. Dad was very bright. Uh, a little bit of the mystery of the uh, of the book is uh, uh, mum saying to me, or the title, Dad, Dad, your father was near genius. He had the lot, but he did a little. Uh, you, you and me, Tim, we've done a li we've done a lot with a little. <laughs> um, so, mum, whether it was that she knew thought she was going to die, she was never going to be able to have children, whether it was the background, I think did project a lot of her ambition onto her sons. Not my sister so much, but Peter and I. And I think um, the sense with mum was she loved dad deeply, but was quite frustrated that he was totally non-ambitious. He mm. was offered career promotions, never took it. He just wanted to be a teacher. And he was in the classroom for 35 years, never wanted pay rises, never wanting to climb, never wanted to eat out. For Dad, fish and chips in the paper in front of the footy was dining out. <laughs> uh, mum, mum had different aspirations and was an intelligent woman who'd gone to university. So I think uh, those agendas were at play. Memoirs are about memories and, and I've often had the good fortune to talk to people who've written memoirs from, fam from families and I, I always ask, who, who owns memories? And when you wrote your memoir, did you need to go back 
verify, change and edit, like your, your brother and sister and your mum, were their memories different to yours? Yeah, I say in the book, mainly to cover myself, um, that uh, memory is a relative of truth, but it's not mm. a twin of truth, <laughs> mm. because uh, memories are highly contested. And uh, I certainly ask permission of my mother, who's mm. the only one alive now, and work through it with her. I ask permission of my children. I reveal some pretty personal things mm. about my children in the book. I didn't ask permission of Peter um, and uh, my sister Janet. Um, look, I hope I have been generous. I believe I've been generous uh, to Peter. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to go and say, you know, can you yeah. sign off on this seemed a little bit of a bridge too far. Yeah. So I've, I've admitted that memories are always contested. Your... Um Community where you grew up, Blackburn is where you grew up. Yes, yes. And there's that section of the book I find particularly powerful: the funeral of your dad, um, uh, which I'd love you to talk about. But the the part of that I find the most interesting was you talk about respect, and the most important respect to have is the respect of the people you've grown up with and in that community. Tell us about what it was like growing up in that part of Melbourne. Yeah, I uh, look back on these days as utterly idyllic. So my parents uh, carved a block of land out of orchard territory. I remember the orchards all around and built a house. Uh, there was no stranger danger. We just used to walk down to Gardener's Creek, uh, swing out on the elephant tree on the tyre, yabby. Gardener's Creek was just this wild playground um, of uh, no parental control and freedom. Uh, I feel sorry for, well, my granddaughter and the world that now kids are in um, because it was so different. Um, we were what you'd probably call lower middle class, but we didn't even know those terms. We were actually blessed. There were people from the St. James and John orphanages at my Blackburn Primary School, and I didn't know what poverty was other than some kids smelt. It was interesting, there were always some kids in class and I identified poverty with a smell and I would invite those kids home. Mum was always having extra food and I knew she would be very welcoming. She would say, Tim is always bringing home strays and uh, that was her phrase, but uh, wonderfully generous. Um, it was a community where uh, Peter and I shared a bedroom for 17 years and... Uh, Probably uh, we have inflicted on the nation uh, since those, uh, <laughs> those disputes we had in that bedroom. Um, but um, we didn't feel poor. Uh, everyone around us was the same. There wasn't uh, this need for postcode or school or brand label recognition. There was a sense that we were blessed. Uh, Dad gave 10% of his income away on a teacher's salary because he felt rich. Uh, and I learned very early on that uh, part of the disease of life, the story we live out of, which is so dominant, is uh, the richer I am, the happier I'll be. I know a lot of rich people who are very unhappy. I know Dad, who wasn't rich and was generous, who felt blessed. He didn't compare up and say someone's doing better. He often reminded us of how well we were doing. If you compare down, you actually feel very blessed and you 
you give. So as a community where we'll talk gratitude, perspective, certainly safety, and uh, right at the heart of it for us was the church, which was the, uh, uh, the centre for us of community and growing up. You've done so many things um, and had what to me seems like so many different careers in different spaces. And one I'd forgotten, um, and these will be at random the next few questions because there's so many, you were mayor of St Kilda. And, and I, I, I was amazed. Talk to us about local politics, but particularly with an emphasis on the social housing. In this area, uh, the, the need for social housing, like everywhere in the country, is, is crying out. You were able to do something that very few people talk to us uh, around that period in your life. So St Kilda had been the catchment area for runaway kids, sex workers, mentally ill, people in boarding houses. It was... The old tart of Melbourne, you know, bohemian and uh, down at the mouth. Um, there's really two St Kilda's. There were the mansions on St Kilda Hill and then the workers' cottages that serviced the docks and the trains. And, um, and when we started, uh, we started a whole range of ministries for St Kilda people out of the church. House for runaway kids, special comms, a legal office. I worked as a lawyer in the church. And then the gentrification hit and uh, yuppies discovered that uh, St Kilda's on the beach and it's only six kilometres from Melbourne and has a tram. Why had we left these to migrants and mentally ill? So they uh, ripped out briquette heaters, put in central heating, painted the workmen's cottages in heritage colours, up went the rents, up went the house prices, out went generations of poor St Kilda people who at least in the long summer had the beach, had public transport. They were forced to the outback of Melbourne where there weren't any services. And I was literally reading my Bible, Isaiah 58, and it said, they shall, they shall build houses and live in them. No longer shall they build houses and others live in them. And it was a neon light sign for me. I thought, what does my faith demand of me? So with others, we formed a group called Turn the Tide. Uh, back in St Kilda then, literally Japanese and other developers handing monies in paper bags were get, getting approvals to build high-rise along the, uh, the, the coast uh, of St Kilda. We stopped that. We then uh, said we're putting ratepayers' dollars into social housing, public community housing, for long-term generational poor St Kilda people. We ran a cultural argument that said, uh, do we want St Kilda to be like Carlton, where you have to own a BMW and wear a Rolex watch to actually afford to live there? Uh, we like the diversity, that you can walk down Ackland Street in St Kilda with your hair in cur curlers, a dressing gown on, a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, and no one would look twice. There was just this sense of bohemian acceptance. And in winning power, we put ratepayers' dollars into social housing. St Kilda now has 12% of all of its housing stock that is social housing. First council in Australia to do it. South Sydney Council invited me up as mayor, saying this is incredible. We've got this challenge. They followed. And... What I learnt later was how powerful this was because state and federal governments, while they've topped up a little bit of uh, 
overnight housing crisis, shelters, after your two nights, two weeks in shelter, when you have to leave, there is nowhere to go to in Australia. So our housing stock, social housing, has dropped from 7% of all housing to 3% nationally. So once you're out of a shelter, basically there's nowhere to go, you're back on the streets. Uh, Scandinavian countries, European countries have 20% of all housing stock that is social housing. That's why you don't see homelessness. That's not a mystery. It's the profound failure of state and federal policies and blaming each other. So for me, a faith extension of Isaiah uh, became a set of policies. I'm the last mayor ever of St Kilda. I did such a good job, they abolished the whole council. Um, <laughs> not really my fault. Jeff Kennett uh, was, had decided on council amalgamations and... Uh, and we got sacked, and I, I was exchanging love messages at the time in the media with Jeff Kennett over uh, the casino and Grand Prix, and mm. he had a reason to, to, to sack us. Let's talk a, a little bit about politics, um, which um, you have been involved in at all the different levels, uh, local, uh, state, and federal. Um, we might come to your... Temptation, temptation politics seem to have been uh, and is a temptation for, for, for all of us. But I'm really interested first in talking about, uh, there is a line I think in the book that says politics used to be the art of compromise or art of compromise. W what's happened with our politics? Because it seems broken to me and the politicians have forgotten that word, compromise. Yeah, I, I think there's a zeitgeist around the world of seeing the world re-tribalise. Maybe a backlash to uh, globalisation. Yeah. But only if we think globally can we deal with climate change, can we deal with uh, 65 million displaced people, can we deal with the free flow of money and tax havens only by international cooperation. But what we're now seeing is ethno-authoritarian autocrats really restoring what I call in the book the old gods of blood and soil. They never really went away. The gods of blood lead to racism. Uh, we know, I think, Donald Trump and many uh, authoritarian leaders have decided on re-election by polarising their nation around blood, <laughs> around race. And we know that this is surging back, uh, triggered by uh, Syrian refugees and others going into Europe. Um, I'm, I'm quite struck that Trump, who read the uh, electorate uh, better than Hillary Clinton in the campaign, uh, read the pain, uh, connected with the pain. But then what did he do with people's pain in the Rust Belt? He said, I'll tell you why you're in pain. It's Mexicans, we're building a wall. It's Muslims, we're banning them. It's blacks in America and that Black Lives Matter uh, campaign. It's the Chinese manipulating markets. We know when you connect people's pain to a scapegoat, where this leads to in history... That authoritarian ethno-populist zeitgeist is global. I think it's finding a new enemy after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and losing an enemy. Secondly, I think what's going on, and I've just talked about this in another session, is the advent of uh, microcasting replacing broadcasting. Once we actually were on the same page, mm. reading the same news and having debates with different people, 
Now microcasting is targeting us through algorithms into little echo chambers. Uh, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica in the BBC Sting said, don't worry about facts, we just make them up. He said, we with our Facebook likes and dislikes know more about people than they themselves know about themselves or their partners know. Really omniscience, a claim to being God. We know people are motivated by fear or hope. We will microcast messages with the Facebook likes of fear and under the radar of the mainstream press. They won't even know what's going on. Those people will be voting because we particularly manipulate their fears. This social media washing machine that sorts us into like-minded groups where we whip ourselves up into a frenzy in a like-minded group that we're victims, we're persecuted, is devastating for politics. Uh, and when you take most people out of a like-minded group, put them with a group of unlike-minded people where they actually listen to their story, it's amazing how quickly they'll move to compromise and acceptance. Mm. But in like-minded groups, no compromise. Absolutely none. You will fight to the end because your identity is now the sub-identities of race, sexuality, ethnicity, religion. It's why I love Martin Luther King in his civil rights movement, even when they're getting bombed and there's assassination attempts by whites. Martin Luther King refuses to demonize whites. He says, our white brothers made a mistake with that attempted bombing. He says, we will match their capacity to hate with our capacity to love. He lifted it beyond the micro-tribes and said, we agree with the American dream, equal and free. We're just asking that blacks be included. He was still holding the bonds of a bigger narrative together. Now the bigger narrative has absolutely been smashed in lots of places and micro uh, and social media is feeding the sub-identities where literally they want to fight they want to yell at each other uh, as I said in the last group in social media it seems to me it's now become you disagree with me equals you hate me yeah. we have lost the ability to even disagree civilly and I have to say, in the book, I talk a bit about Peter and how both of us have maintained relationship, uh, living out the fact that we have different views on life. We come at issues differently, but you can totally respect the dignity and the conviction of a person who you might say, I don't quite see it that way, trying to model that there is another way uh, for politics to come together and compromise. You haven't only been... <laughs> you haven't only been a politician, um, or sometimes a would-be politician tempted to, to enter the federal sphere, you, you've also been a, an activist, which to me is a lot braver in lots of ways, because if I can quote your daughter here, I think you lose a lot when you're an activist. <laughs> and, and it seems to me that is the bravest of paths. Why choose that? Because you call yourself an activist and it seems to me for most of your decades that's what you've actually been, an activist. Yes, yeah, the memoir really is uh, coming to that conclusion. Yeah. I, uh, 
I uh, am one of the best known reverends in Australia, but I never wanted to be ordained and a reverend. <laughs> I uh, am, was a lawyer for 15 years, but I never wanted to be a lawyer. I ended up in as mayor, but I didn't really want to go into politics. I was a CEO of one of the biggest charities, and I hate management. <laughs> uh, and so the exploration is, what am I? And uh, activist actually is really part of the answer. This sense that there is a visceral feeling within me that uh, emotionally rises up, that gives me a sense I can't be silent, I have to engage, I have to go, I have to be with people who are suffering. Uh, the memoir is an exploration of, well, that's not really a job, it's not really a career, but it is a calling. Uh, it is not climbing a career ladder with ever greater money and uh, uh, social status. It's a calling of saying, what is it that if I don't do it, the world's going to be poorer and I'm going to be poorer? Mm. How do I actually take that seriously? Because just climbing the career ladder pulls me away from that calling. But what, what keeps an activist putting one foot in front of the other when oftentimes you get clobbered and you get bruised and, and what were you, the left-wing left, left -wing cleric? I, I can't remember, but there was a term that you were always... Yeah, Kenner, Kenner called me a leftist cleric and a troublesome priest, yeah. Uh, yeah. which I'm going to put on my business card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what, what keeps an activist troublesome cleric putting one foot in front of the other, year in, year out. Not, not month in, month out. For years and years you did that. What keeps you moving forward? Yeah, I, I uh, can only explain this in terms of my faith. Yep. Uh, I certainly believe that you can make into a god social justice and burnout, or environmentalism, which I agree with, and burnout, uh, or other things that the mainstream culture worships, uh, it worships money in the markets. It worships self-image. It worships power. It worships sex. That when you worship something or give your power over to something that's not uh, truly transcendent, actually it can devour you. Mm. It can become another form of idolatry mm. uh, sucking you out. So for me, that sense of uh, praying each day and uh, reading my scriptures and reminding myself uh, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not responsible for this broken world and when I want to give up a whisper in my soul that I hear, uh, God saying I haven't given up on this broken world that I love, uh, that actually is spiritual nourishment that um, it's not my responsibility but there are still things I can do and I don't live with Guilt, well, there is sometimes guilt, I haven't done enough, but because I'm not the Messiah, I can't live with guilt. This is God's problem, not mine. So I don't expect others to share that faith or understand it, but that's the answer to, to activism for me. I think that there's, there's few books I've read where, where you are taken into the worlds that you were able through your involvement with World Vision, which was a $400 million a year organisation, um, from, from what I understand, but there's few people that have been and seen what you've actually seen. I'm interested in two things. Um, describe to all of us the scenes that you saw on the, the train. Is it that something of dream? Uh, the Gaul train. The Gaul train. Mm. And, and then how 
do you deal with those things that you've seen things that none of us have seen here? How do you move on to the next thing? How do you clear your mind and then move on to positive things, having seen some of the stuff you've seen? Yeah, so 1,500 people in the train going down from Colombo to Gaul. Gaul's a famous cricket ground. Shane Warne got his 500th test wicket mm. there. Uh, hit by the tsunami and just, just like it was a, a, a toy train, uh, overturned. And uh, as I got up to uh, Colombo in under 40 hours and started the trip down to Gaul, which normally would take... Uh, you about three or four hours. It, it took it, about it, yeah. it took about fifteen hours, just because of the damage. So many people staring out to sea, and there they were, because loved ones had disappeared. The wave that they made their living from had turned into they were fishermen by and large, had turned into the wave of death. Uh, it's why rebuilding couldn't happen quickly. Lots of impatient Australians who gave said, why haven't you just rebuilt? Because many of those people weren't sure they wanted to live there anymore. The land titles were all destroyed. Uh, it takes time for people to say, I'm prepared to go back to my job as a fisher person. Um, so the silence of people standing on the beach and staring out to sea, longing for a body longing to see a loved one was eerie. Um, the smell of mass graves and bodies, the uh, extraordinary sense that something in natural evil that I can't process has overwhelmed and claimed 300,000 lives in seven countries where I was at the Boxing Day test when the messages started coming in. Every hour the death toll doubled. It kept doubling for the next two weeks. It was, and I left the test cricket, I rang my office, I booked a flight, got on a flight that night. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, my first disaster actually was Darfur in Sudan and before the tsunami. And on national TV, when I came back, I just cried. It was blubbering, incomprehensible. What's this guy trying to communicate? Because I had met so many women who had been systematically raped and their daughters by the Janjaweed, uh, black uh, South Sudanese women up in that region in a camp that had 30,000 people. Imagine a camp in Alice Springs with sand dunes, intense heat, unbelievable mass of humanity. But it was the personal stories of rape, of how humans who so often can be good and we look in the mirror and want a good story to tell, tell about ourselves, I do it, can be full of such malevolence, such cruelty, mm. such uh, arrogance toward others. Um, that profoundly disturbed me. So I, I, live, I think I live with post-trauma stress. I will be uh, telling a story unrelated to World Vision, a happy occasion out of nowhere, I'll see a face and really without warning I'll find myself in tears. People are at the speech will go, that's odd, why is he crying? It's a happy occasion. You realise you uh, only deal with it by building comp compartments around 
uh, your emotions. You can't expect Australians to understand what you've seen. But you also realise the compartments leak. They hemorrhage. And so there is a sense in which you do carry the scars. You know that you can't unsee what you've seen. And uh, you can't expect Australians. It's easy to get angry because sometimes they'll be listening and you'll see the eyes glaze over and they'll go, who's playing in the cricket tonight? <laughs> And there is this surge of, but don't you know, I'm trying to tell you about the rawness of humanity. It's not fair mm. to get angry, to resent. So at one level, you actually pull back and build those compartments trying, trying to deal with uh, how you go on. So that also is, is part of my story. It seems... It, it, it seems also to me reading your book that weaved throughout the pages is, is a whole pile of lessons or pointers to us. Um, the area that, that, that I felt most deeply was um, the area of mental health and loneliness within, within our communities. You've had a very unique insight into that through all of the different things you've been involved in. Why is loneliness such an epidemic in our modern community? Yeah, some 42% of Australians eat uh, their dinner alone, only with the TV and a, and a laptop. Um, the fragmenting of community, hmm. I think, is a social disaster. Uh, the UK now has a minister for loneliness hmm. in, in Westminster. This is not just Australian, this is Western. Um, I don't know, Chris. Uh, at one level, I think um, the left, the cultural left, have uh, said, particularly in the 60s, uh, pleasure's the goal, chemical experimentation and liberation and sexual experimentation and liberation, throw off restraints, find the true essential self. Part of my book is really saying... Uh, when the cultural left says choice is the most important thing, preferring choice sometimes to community, I'm saying this book, in this book, I actually was chosen. <laughs> there was community, there was faith. My father's faith experience is the formative thing really about my life. And yes, there are restraints and I talk about them in the book and need for individuation, but actually that chosenness gave me community, that sense that I indwell a story that isn't just some pure individualistic essence that I can find throw mm. ju by just throwing off the restraints of that story. And there are restraints in community. We all know that. I think the uh, right uh, of politics has had the same individualistic push with... Uh, plug in your preferences into the market, it will allocate the resources and spit out wonderful low-priced consumer goods, labels that sort of give you some sense of identity and uh, look, I'm making it, look what I drive or what I wear. Uh, again, the result, the fruit of that is loneliness. Mm. Um, whether at left or of right, it's why uh, people always put me on the left, maybe that's fair, but I say, look, you tell me what your issue is politically. I'll tell you my response. You tell me if it's left or right. Uh, gambling is 
typically a right-wing issue. And I've, mm. for 25 years, that's, that's why my daughter said to me after a few years, Dad, is there any campaign you've ever won? Um, They're cruel daughters, aren't they? And I realised she was saying, yeah, my old man's a loser. <laughs> How do I tell my friends about this? Uh, there, there's a lovely story, letter in the book uh, from my son who mm. wrote a letter at 30 to his 15-year-old mm. self. And I found it very moving because he realised inviting his friends round to a home where his friends were shocked that people with mental illness or drug problems t turned up to our home. My son was so ashamed of this because his friends said, this family's scary and weird. And this doesn't happen in our family. And it's my 30-year-old son really writing to his uh, 13, 14-year-old self, saying I was ashamed, my friends were ashamed. Thank you. I own that. That was, that was wonderful. Mm. Um, so I do think in my life I've said I, in my faith, will do anything that creates community. For all the awful mistakes the church have made, uh, not the least being the terrible abuse of kids, failing kids, failing Jesus, who said, any one who harms a child, better a millstone around his neck. But churches that meet week by week to listen to a morally or spiritually serious topic, a sermon, who then pass around a plate uh, and give, who then say, let's organise around homelessness, this is quite unique still in fragmented communities in Australia, that people actually gather, mm. that they actually try and exercise something communal. So while I'm a critic of the church, I also say when we lose community, when it becomes individualism, uh, mental illness, epidemics of youth suicide, here in Australia, one of the highest levels in the lucky country, where young people are going, what's the point? Is there meaning? It seems so hollow. Mm. Um, I think we only answer those questions because we are social beings made for community. One of the general complaints you hear from people in conversation or read in the media is the lack of leaders political and non-political in our communities now, a dearth of leadership. Uh, you are one of the true leaders of our community on a number of different levels. So I want to ask you, what have you learned about leadership in, in, in your decades leading all the different organisations, World Vision, but all the other organisations? What have you learned about leadership? I think the most important three things from leadership is firstly empathy. I think empathy is the mark of our humanity. What if that was me? What is it like to suffer? I want people who frame our policies, the architects, to actually endure our policies. That's why the right question to ask of the government is, you try living on Newstart $40 a day. Mm. Uh, until you actually have the empathy to say, let me try and live on that. What does it actually mean, this lovely slick lie? No, we have New Start just for job transition and that's what it's all about. Um, the second thing I think of leadership is imagination. The uh, terror of the times is uh, Tina. There is no alternative. Uh, the market 
wants this mm. and the people want this. Leaders need to imagine a different way of being and to say that is, that is possible. The third mark of leadership is courage. Uh, mm. When uh, people say to me, you're a leader, I, I, I would like to be a leader, uh, I say to them, literally, why? And, oh, well, they give a number of reasons and I say, look, a leader is always someone who gets attacked. Uh, anything I say in the public, I know that up to 50% of people with di will disagree with me. Up to 5% will never, ever forgive me. <laughs> and they'll troll and they'll attack. Leaders actually have to have courage. Mm. And I think those three things I've learned, empathy, imagination and courage are the, are the traits. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll join, you'll join with me in, in, in not only thanking Tim, but congratulating Tim on all the amazing things he's done in his life. Put your hands together for Tim Costello. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.